This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. This is episode seven of WealthFest, the weekly Bull and Bear. We're coming to you on December 18th, so Wednesday morning. Right now, we've seen stocks go up for six days straight. The Dow Jones is uh, start of the day at roughly 28,291. Uh, S&P's at 3,192. VIX is at 12.37. And Treasuries are yielding right now approximately 1.908%. So what we've really seen is that, the um, well, before we get into you know today's podcast, I'd like to mention the fact that we are now on Spotify. So if you have Spotify, please subscribe there. Um, if, if you're not on the podcast app, you know, Spotify is a great and convenient way to listen. Uh, additionally, this will be our last episode until uh, the new year. So we'll pick up again in a couple weeks. So for all the viewers out there, have a great Christmas time and, and new year. But it appears today that the global economy has certainly regained its footing. Um, I mean, we've had a lot of developments. I mean, U.S. business activity has improved to a five-month high in December. Uh, we've seen that China's industrial output and consumer spending has accelerated in November. Um, we had Europe's benchmark of stocks, uh, Europe 600, set a new new high in more than four years. Uh, Grant, where do you think the global economy is? And um, have we kind of staved off some of the recession risks we heard a lot about in, in August and September? Definitely. The downside risks look a lot less severe now than they do in the summer. The U.S. reached a limited trade deal with China. Hopefully you sign that by the end of the year. Then we're also seeing the the finishing touches on the new trade deal with Mexico and uh, Canada. Also, as we talked about last episode, Washington reached a deal to keep the government operating through next year of September. And then we saw Boris Johnson, which I know we'll talk about later in the show, but he has won the UK election, and so now we're definitely heading towards Brexit, so we have some certainty there. You know, Overall, U.S. still has solid growth in the service sectors. One big thing to, to look at is how Boeing is going to respond with the suspended production of the 737 MAX next month. Uh, and then, as you pointed to, China, the second largest econ- economy, is still continuing to show growth as their industrial output was little over 6% higher than year over year. Uh, and then we're also seeing their retail sales climb by 8% in November compared to last year. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, everything is um, kind of leading towards frothy valuations. I mean, we had the uh, phase one. It's kind of been outlined, at least. Uh, with China, we had a conclusive election in Britain. Uh, which we'll talk about, but for now, at least markets know that there will be a Brexit in some form, uh, shape, or another. Um, I mean, the markets that that started off a little bit higher in Europe because you know there's some stability on the deal, but then there's also been a little bit more volatility. Um, we've seen the last couple of days because we don't know whether it will be in the capacity of a no deal or it will be in the capacity of something that Boris Johnson has outlined. Um, so between Brexit, between China, between, um, you know, uh, U.S. CMA looks like it's kind of coming wrapping up as well. So we have a lot of trade deals that have been, um, you know, finalized. We've had elections that have been finalized and central banks are kind of 
puttering along, you know, not making dramatic changes either or. So we just see a lot of global stability, I think. And uh, one of the things about the global stability, though, is that, you know, with with another of geopolitical headwinds that are at least have died down, uh, there is a risk of artificially um, frothy valuations. So, Grant, how about we talk about what a melt-up is? Uh, you know, we had analysts at Bank of America, uh, Merrill Lynch, you know, say this is prime for a Q1 2020 risk asset melt-up. Um, what is a melt-up and, and what should we be looking at? So, a melt-up is a dramatic and unexpected improvement in the investment performance of an asset class. So, pretty much what this is, is a lot of investors jumping on, not wanting to miss out on a rise of a certain asset class and not really looking at say the fundamentals or why they should be investing rather they don't want to miss out on gains. Uh, so these are meltups are considered pretty unreliable indicators because it's it's not really fundamental investing but rather on on emotion. So if we if we look at what the US economy is doing right now, we saw the S&P 500 and Nasdaq best annual gain since 2013 with the S&P return up by a little under 30 as well as the Nasdaq heavy tech index rose about 38%. Um, so we're seeing that a lot of people are continuing to invest in these indices, even though they're at all-time highs. Yeah, and, and this is happening in spite of the fact that, I mean, the economy still is um, got signs of weakness, right? Uh, let's look specifically at, you know, we had unemployment numbers come in at a, a two-year high. Uh, so... Um, we saw that the initial claims for state unemployment benefits surged 49,000 to a seasonally adjusted uh, 252,000 for the week that ended on December 7th. Now, that's the highest reading since September 2007, um, and it was the largest increase since August 2000, or se- sorry, since September 2017, and it was the largest increase since August 2017. So uh, part of this is has to do with, you know, the, the holiday season and Thanksgiving and um there's always some more seasonal fluctuations on the data around this time, but but that's not necessarily a great number, and it's signs of still some kind of chinks in our armor, right? Yeah, the, the accommodations by the central bank, we're seeing that the Fed is going to keep stability through 2020, so I think that's a good sign. And then they're also continuing to provide liquidity into the market, so I think that they're keeping the, the market buoyant in, in the coming months. We've also seen uh, U.S. retail sales fall slightly. Um, so, I mean, the Commerce Department came out on Friday and uh, said that sales rose, you know, 0.2% last night um, or, or last month. And data for, for uh, October was revised to show it increasing. But, but um, you know, they, we thought that uh, retail sales would accelerate, you know, more in, more in November. So a lot of that had to do with oil prices and and other things, but we have seen a little bit of weakening of, of retail sales. This is concerning going into the holiday season because if we see a drastic decrease in, in retail sales over the holiday holiday season, I think that this is showing uh, one sign of a weaker economy as, as consumer spending has really been a driving force. That said, <clears throat> we're, we're seeing sales and retail sales drop across the board. So sales in... Um, Restaurants and bars are down, as well as music instruments and bookstores. There was a slight increase in electronics, uh, but overall we're seeing less spending across the board, which which is not a good sign going into the holiday spending. Yeah, I mean, um, 
you know, auto, like auto sales were, you know, up 0.5% after, after 1% in October. So, uh, things have slowed down, you know, um, quite a bit, uh, electronics and applications, uh, stores remain kind of up, but, but at the same time, you know, we, we've seen, seem definitely weakening numbers. Um, now let's, let's kind of put everything in context, I guess. I mean, we're coming into the new year. And if there's been any lesson is that economists, you know, got this decade substantially wrong. Um, you know, there was a lot of chatter about how, you know, by 2015, we could see interest rates go back up into the 4%. That's absolutely not what happened. It was totally flat, has been for for a number of years. Um, we've had a lot of different economic hypotheses that have seemed to be unfounded. Um, some were still waiting to test the results, uh, whether that be, you know, secular um, stagnation. Uh, Grant, why do you think economists got this decade so wrong since since the recession and, and what lessons do we have? Well, one of the explanations that I saw is called the debt hangover. And so what what these economists had looked at is that <clears throat> after a, excuse me, after a financial crisis, we see households, banks, businesses, even governments really want to pay down their debts because they're worried of another crisis and what that would happen. And then therefore they avoid borrowing and spending and therefore that holds down growth and inflation and interest rates, which I think is what we're seeing other than the growth piece, but inflation and interest rates continue to be at all time lows. Yeah. And, and, but even growth at the same time, I mean, um, last year we just posted a growth number similar to 2015. So, you know, they've still been twos and change or a little less. So it's not like we've we've seen necessarily gangbusters growth, um, although it's definitely, you know, in some ways more solid than, than we could be anticipated this late cycle. Um, but then you also have, you know, like economists like Larry Summers, who's talking about secular stagnation, uh, you know, which is we'll see if this this plays out but when we're talking about we have a slowing population growth is weighing heavily on our growth and in interest rates um, and then we have other factors right so we have fast growing businesses and social media platforms um, they kind of run on you know slim margins and they, you know less heavy investment so this is kind of or we've got a demographic issue but then we have an issue of businesses also instead of like you know historically like a fast growth model it's just really trying to squeeze margins and and just trying to capture those gains as they can we're seeing that the private sector economists are now expecting interest rates over the next 10 years to average about 2.4% so still not a uh, a little bit of increase from where they currently are but not that 4% that people were anticipating I think that this is going to be really interesting going over the, the next decades because with interest rates closer to zero, the central bank is going to have less ability to use that as a tool in future recessions. Also, we can see that with with less private borrowing, that means governments can run up bigger deficits without pushing interest rates up. So that was another factor that may keep them low. Uh, so I think that moving forward, there's it's going to be interesting to see if interest rates continue to stay this low. And, and I think over the next decade, they are. Right. And Larry Summers would make the argument that at this point, if we are to reduce entitlements, that's about the worst thing you can do because it, you know, increases saving and then the just, you know, um, drives yields down even further. As we've seen, you know, it's been part of the German market, right? Like economies that save heavily, um, you know, 
drive down yield. So, so getting more money in the system might be a better thing to, to, to avoid secular stagnation. Let's, let's talk about the China phase one deal. So, I mean, what happened is, you know, we've, we've seen to come to some kind of accords. President Trump said the Chinese would buy $50 billion in agricultural purchases pretty soon. Uh, Reuters has reported that U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lightsizer uh, told reporters that they'd buy at least $16 billion more over the next two years. So there seems to be, you know, kind of, we, we don't know really when, know how much and how, when, but uh, between these two big, between two big purchases, you know, we can get about near to $50 billion between uh, 2020 and 2021. Um, so, so this is a big plus. I mean, the ag issue has been, um, has been, you know, a huge, a huge hindrance in kind of finding a, a conclusive deal. But there's been a lot of other issues um, in terms of Peter Navarro's seven deadly sins that we have yet to address. Right, Grant? Yeah, and I also think it's going to be interesting to see how and when the U.S. will roll back other tariffs because uh, some of them are conditional on a phase one deal. Uh, agriculture is still going to be huge. What is going to happen if China doesn't meet the the sales that are in the deal? Are we going to scrap the deal and go back and add additional tariffs? How are we going to penalize them? Also, a big one and, and one of the biggest pieces that I think is the deadly sin that resonates the most with me is how we protect intellectual property. So they say that that there's uh, increased protections for American intellectual prop- property and it's going to end China's practice of forcing American companies to transfer technology to their Chinese partner. And if that's the case, that, I think that would be a huge win for, for American companies. But is that really the case? So I, I think that there's a structure for the deal, but we'll actually see how fine and strong it is for, for the U.S. Yeah, I, we, I mean, I also saw that we kind of we've been really going after the World Bank for for borrowing to China in the first place, which doesn't make sense for us. Um, so that's that's one area of antagonism um, that could be could be detrimental when we're trying to get through these phases. Uh, also, we haven't really come to terms of, you know, I mean, China's got massive subsidies on its steel and its solar panel companies, and so we haven't really hit the government subsidies area yet either. So there's a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of tough issues to tackle yet and, and to have dialogue about. But at least for now, uh, we've seemed to kind of end, end, you know, some of the farmers' plight and got agricultural purchases up. Um, right now, the, uh, the the trade war on that front, you know, bailing out the farmers has been six, substantially more than it ever was for the auto workers. So it's it has been a huge drag on that sector. Yeah. I also think that it's interesting that the United States is now the highest, has the highest tariff rate out of any advanced nation, higher than China, India, and Turkey. And we saw that the United States has now collected 39 billions from tariffs. But Trump says that China is paying for them, but we all know that it's really falling on American businesses and that could fall a lot on the agricultural business as well. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's taxed just like any other ones. Um, so we, we, we've seen some conclusions from a lot of the topics we mentioned last week, uh, that being Saudi Arabia's, uh, Saudi Arabia's Aramco IPO and then um, the elections in Britain. So let's, let's tackle those. First with uh, Aramco's IPO, uh, you know, they said they were worth $2 trillion, and after a few days of trading, they, they got to their $2 trillion. So, um, you know, they're, 
they're closed at about ten thirteen uh, ten dollars and thirteen cents a share, and that gave the company a valuation of two point um, zero three trillion. So, you know, it's it, that that gives it a massive valuation. In fact, it's about the size of all the Western um, oil companies combined. Uh, you know, that's like Exxon Mobil, Chevron, um, Total, BP, and Royal Dutch Shell. Uh, it's valued far more than Apple or Microsoft, which are each around one point two trillion dollars. So. Uh, yeah, it was. It's been quite a run so far. I think what analysts are looking at is the for the high valuation that we're seeing in Aramco is its profitability. So through the first nine months of this year, they've reported sixty eight billion dollars in net income, which is a huge number. Uh, and I think it's because they have very low cost. They have matchless oil fields, and they're able to produce oil better than any, not better, but more than any other oil company. So they're really just a cash cow. Uh, and then I think that one of the big things that we're seeing is maybe that the local placement in the Saudi exchange was good for them because uh, then they they are, um, they believe that the national oil company has a bright future, uh, especially for Saudis. And then um, if they were, say, to in, to list on the United States and Europe, people may have been more skeptical uh, about fossil fuel companies as in general, and therefore it could have had a different impact on the IPO. But it's, it's interesting that we've seen that the Saudis are talking about getting more foreign direct investment, but yet they only listed their shares on the local exchange and have a lot of local investment and, and aren't really opening it up to foreign investment. Well, I think one of the things is because the exchange is so small, you know, the governments and banks can do a lot more to encourage and, and get investors to buy and hold on to shares. Whereas if, you know, you're traded on the NYSE, it's much more difficult when you have trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of assets. So, you know, being listing in a small exchange with, you know, within a very centralized uh, command command economy makes it quite a little bit easier. Um, so we'll see if they ever have a follow on offerings what happens if they go on to you know london or or new york you know but but yeah so far i mean we got that two trillion dollar mark and um and uh so i mean overall it's been good but we've still seen instances of you know in terms of the international investor funds for schemes like you know the prince's real estate projects and other other efforts to diversify from oil saudi arabia still got a long ways to go Let's let's get into now Britain's election. So um, it was a devastating loss for the Labour Party. Uh, it was, you know, led by Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so it was one of the worst parliamentary showings in almost a hundred years. Uh, the Conservative Party is at its strongest since you know the Thatcher era. Um, you know, we saw, you know, uh, we, 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 there's a couple lessons like I think we can take from this. But I mean, Corbyn was very unpopular. Um, you know, Boris Johnson wasn't popular either. He was at a minus 12 in the YouGov approval poll-in, but Corbyn was at a negative 40. So, which which mathematically, it's just, how how do you get there? But what what lessons, if any, can we take, Grant, and can we, you know, apply these to our side of the pond, maybe, coming into 2020? Well, I think it shows that Boris Johnson wasn't liked, but he was still able to have a, a strong foothold on conservative issues that are holding together both rich and poor voters. And that's 
what's happening here in the United States with Mr. Trump, uh, who has conservative positions and it's, and it's attracting voters. I, one of the biggest lessons from this is how there was a huge flip where traditionally labor went conservative because of uh, conservative policies and that the labor party has come out of tune with them uh, in terms of their wants and needs. And I think that's why we saw such a huge flip over to the conservative party is because uh, they lost track of their, their voters. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there's, there's, I mean, there's other lessons too. Uh, so not only have we seen, you know, kind of a broken European union, you know, Britain will leave now, but, but we also saw the nationalist parties in Scotland and Ireland have a huge jump. So Sinn Féin in, in Ireland, which is, you know, the political organization, but, you know, really used to be an offshoot of the IRA, was their political wing, uh, winning in a number of counties over, you know, the, the uh, over the, uh, over the, you know, the Remainers, um, the DUP. But uh, then also we saw the S&P in Scotland uh, kind of pick up a lot of seats now. So we might see another referendum in Scotland. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know if it's if whether or not, you know, we're consistently running candidates that seem out of tune for the world right now or or if candidates have gone um, or if they, if, or whether they're going too far left or whether they're at just going against the movement of what is, you know, increased nationalism around the globe. But, but it'll be interesting to see. I mean, this election is, of course, a standalone and it's different than in the United States. But in terms of, you know, running on popular candidates and running candidates outside of moderation, I mean, the Democratic Party might, you know, look at this and, and take some lessons, depending on which, which one of their candidates emerge from the primaries. But yeah, I mean, as a result, we've seen sterling rise. And, um, and so, you know, the, the pound's quite a bit bigger, and then the, the FTSE went up, um, you know, 1.1%. So, I mean, I think with that, we should kind of close out this podcast a little bit early today. Uh, you know, everyone's kind of getting the holiday season. Uh, Grant, is there anything you're going to be looking at market-wise? Well, it'll be interesting to see how everyone finishes the 2019. Uh, so we'll be looking for, for those results in Q1 next year. Uh, also continue to watch how the impeachment's hearing play out. We're seeing a, a lot of steam with that, uh, with Mitch McConnell's comments yesterday. Uh, as well as all week. And so th those would be the big ones that I'm looking at. What about yourself? Yeah, yeah. I'll uh, be looking at impeachment, and, you know, we're going to have a verdict down to vote here in a few hours. So uh, <laughs> it'll be time to log <laughs> off and see what's going on. All right, everybody, have a great, um, great Christmas, and uh, we'll get back to you uh, next year. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.